Sometimes a lot of people come at food in a very rational way, and that's probably been one of my lessons learned is no, food is not rational, it's emotional. We connect as humans as part of our culture. Uh, you know, we all gather around food and all of those things, right? So you can't sort of look at food and go, here it is in a very objective way. It's actually really, really subjective when you are just pulling it together. G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and thank you for tuning in for another week. It's been a few wild weeks for us over here. We've been traveling a fair old bit. We've had plenty of laughs, um, met some absolutely incredible people, which we'll be bringing to the airwaves soon. And there's been a whole lot of juggling, so we're managing to keep on going. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to getting off the grid into the Kimberleys in a couple of weeks. This episode, though, was recorded before I headed off, and it was on the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm sitting down with someone who's been on my whiteboard list, I reckon, since day one. Angelina Charia, she is an absolutely remarkable woman. Over the past 20 years, she's had a variety of roles in global multinationals as well as local programs. Her area of expertise is she's a global food innovation expert. She's able to turn ideas into products and then able to commercialise them. Angeline, you're definitely nothing short of a pioneer in terms of, I think when I came across you, you were at the forefront of the Monash Food Innovation Centre and that transition from Mondelez to Monash Uni. And I just remember going in there and seeing what was the uh, supermarket of the future and this this technology that you'd like walk into an aisle um, in quotations and it would track your eyes to see where are you looking and how could brands then use that to... Like, I was just absolutely mind-blown. So, obviously today you've moved on and you're now the Executive Director of Innovation and Growth at Simplot Australia, which just sounds like an awesome role. And I think maybe just all your roles are pretty cool that you've had. So, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Uh, Thank you, Ollie, and thank you for that very humbling introduction as well. Um, Maybe I sound a bit wise and old now. (laughs) But I've had a lot of fun along the way. I've had a lot of fun along the way. <laughs> I reckon you just fun. sound like the cool kid. Just the, <laughs> all this new innovations and fun and emerging Who doesn't things? love new sparkly stuff, right? You've just got to make sure it always turns into value rather than innovation for innovation's sake. And how are things going for you? Whereabouts are you at the moment? Ah, so I'm based here, uh, I'm with Simplot Australia now, and I'm based in Melbourne, and so I'm a Melbourne girl, uh, Victorian, true and true, but, uh, um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a great journey the last two and a half years, and in the middle of winter here, as I look outside my office, and uh, I can feel that lovely Melbourne cold, which sometimes I complain about, but I really love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the thing about Melbourne, one thing that I knew from when like living down there, you just dress for it. It's like, oh, well, it could be raining, it could be sunny. We're just going to dress for everything and we'll see how we go from there. Yeah, that's the best part about it. <laughs> and so what's been keeping you busy at the moment? Oh, lots always keeping me busy. I think I'm one of those people that likes to, well, keep busy, but also making sure that I'm making an impact, right? So obviously my job uh, is, is a quite a, a busy job um, and, and there's a, a lot always on and very different and varied given the complex business that I'm part of and running. Um, we also, um, and then I have my other things that I do outside of work, which is a lot of, um, I guess, I think when you come to 
where I'm at now in my life stage and my career, Ollie, it's really important for me to give back. So I mentor a lot of startups and I've always kept my finger and, and the pie on that. And I meet some wonderful uh, entrepreneurs along the way. And it's always been in the space of ag and food and ultimately agri-food for me. I've also got a couple of board roles and advisory roles with some organisations. And then um, last year I, um, I joined um, the G100 Million Mission, which is a global mission uh, about really advancing the role of women in, in, um, in food innovation. So that's what I'm leading as an Australian chapter as a chair. And trying to um, sound out out there for lots of women in very different walks of lives in the, who are interested in advancing food innovation in our country. Actually, I will say agri-food innovation in our country to come forward and join the, the Mission Million. <laughs> so there's a little plug. Yeah. And how's that going for you in terms of chatting with the groups from across the world? And how are you guys tracking towards the one million? Yeah, it's it's early days, so it's in every sector, and uh, I'm uh, part of the food innovation chapter. So Sharon Kitoni, you may or may not see X Seeds and Chips and now Edible Ventures. So she is the global head for food innovation, and um, yeah, we're you know just slowly sort of build uh, the chairs around different countries. So we're starting to come together and really then say, okay, how are we going to get together and start to influence and impact through this with. Um, really probably feeling our way a little bit around what role can we play? How do we enable? How do we actually help facilitate and connect? Because ultimately, I think when you when you speak to women who are either in academia, research, industry, startup world, um, you know, what some of the or growers even, and some of the things you hear about always is, I don't know who's out there or how do I connect to the resources? And there are a lot of it around, right? Uh, it's just unfortunate that it's really sometimes it's not easily accessible to people or if you have a network that you've built, then it's easy to do that. But how do you also make sure that you connect that out and ultimately you need to share that, otherwise there's no point. Yeah, absolutely. Sharon's an absolute trailblazer. God, she's cool and just incredible at what she does, isn't she? She is. She's a gun. She's a gun. Very inspiring lady for sure. <laughs> and so dealing with Sharon... And Italy, does that mean that your, your end of the stick is you're having to join the calls late at night so it fits in with their mornings? Yeah, uh, yes, a little bit. <laughs> They're not so bad. They're like a 7, 8 p.m. Um, oh, it's so, not too bad. Yeah, it's not so bad. That's uh, She's very mindful and, you know, she does try and wake up a little bit earlier. <laughs> oh, that's good. But we've, we've got US, we've got, you know, other European countries into APAC as well. So we all share the load. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to jump back. Your whole career has really been around food, food innovation, agri-innovation. So was it something, you said you're a Melbourne girl, but was this something that you just happened to stumble upon as a kid, as a teenager? Where did this passion come from and what was a younger Angeline's dreams and ambitions? Oh, wow. If only I was as uh, put together as I am. Uh, but I think my sense of food and being connected to food, so I'm Fiji and Indian descent, um, very early formative years grew up in Fiji. 
And my dad was actually in agriculture and my mum was um, in health. Um, she was a nurse. Um, and, and I think I had a lot of that early influence, you know, spending holidays on my grandparents' sugarcane farm and really being, you know, when when you go out and are harvesting, you know, cane and burning cane and eating the sugarcane just straight out of the ground, that's such a delicious experience. I urge everyone to try that. Um, and, and then I guess being, close you know through my dad through agriculture and he had one of those roles where he was sort of the ag district officer if you will so it meant that we were traveling around all the islands um, around the pacific at one stage and living in different parts as well so I got exposed a lot through ag uh, and then ultimately, obviously, how that turns into food. So for me, whenever someone talks food and or whenever someone talks agriculture, I actually see them as one. And I'm sort of you know, using the term agri-food, if you will, because ultimately you want to turn all of that beautiful stuff into food that we as humans enjoy. So and I love eating. Who doesn't love eating and food? And, you know, my husband and I, we travel for food and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, always nice to to do that. So um, I think that has probably the early childhood had a lot of influence and then went, you know, to uni and I did a, um, a science degree and you had to then actually specialise and you had a choice. You had to choose between back in the day biology, it was environment or it was food. And back then I had no idea about like, okay, what is this thing that you would study food? What would you become? You know, a lot of people said, oh, you're going to become a cook. <laughs> that was the perception. And even I went, oh, do you want to become a cook? I don't want to become. And my father actually said to me, he goes, pick food because everybody always needs to eat and you always have a job. <laughs> yeah, wise <laughs> words. pragmatic as a god, Ollie. <laughs> well, and it's incredible to kind of fast forward and look at where it is now. But so, so you chose food. Did that start to, you started to build your network of people in the food industry and was it the logical step out of uni? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, even just learning about all the complexities of what it takes to actually create and design a product, right? I had no idea in terms of how, you know, I would at least love eating it on the other side or see it grow in the ground, but how it actually turned into something. Um, and that was the stuff that I really loved. I, I got so curious about just um, that whole process of how do you go and design and develop something for an end user or target market, um, the process of putting a recipe together, not just how you cook in the kitchen, but really ultimately something that's going to have to last through a, a processing technology, either on the shelf or in a freezer or in the chiller, for instance, and then making sure that that thing stays safe and can feed the ultimate consumer. So all of that got me really excited. And, um, and I guess through uni, it meant that I could branch out um, and understand, you know, different food companies and different roles that you could take up and food tech was naturally the thing that I steered to so and I could and I think when I was at uni you could go okay okay so what does my role become when I go into a company like this you could go into product development you could go into packaging you could go into process manufacturing as well and I ended up and maybe it was by default or the roles that I actually ended up getting was all around product development. So I was actually designing food for, for humans is where I started off with. How cool. Mm -hmm. and, and was it at, 
was it always looking at new products and and we'll say the word innovation but was it always looking at what the next thing could be um, it was a little bit of both. It was um, looking at new products. And so what would, you know, you launch in the next six months, in the next 12 months? Uh, and then it was also about just looking at the current quality and maintaining the current um, products that were in the marketplace. So as new ingredients came or new technologies, how could you improve and value add to existing or optimise it, as we used to say, right? But it was it was really bringing together product, process, packaging, and then how it would actually then look on shelf because on shelf was probably by far the biggest thing we did back in that day as well. And how has the space evolved? Because I think like just recently on the podcast, we've had a new packaging business, Great Wrap, who are doing cool cling wraps um, and and pallet wrapping. But in terms of, for me, yeah, when, when I think of the innovation space, like I was naturally going to the packaging end, but then this whole yeah food design and recipes and stuff i hadn't even kind of thought about that um in the innovation space silly mm. oh look it has evolved tremendously right in, in some ways i think if you step back and uh look at it the way we probably um i guess grow food manufacture and process food maybe hasn't really historically changed much But I think what's really changed and evolved is then within each one of those, you know, new technologies or new ways that we're now getting to our end user or consumer or customer. And and I think also now you are so much more mindful. I mean, I remember when I was a product developer, the the most important thing was always taste. Taste is always king. Doesn't matter if it's healthy, it was about sustainability. And, you know, that was very lack of back in, the, in those days, but it was always about taste, right? Whereas today, when you're a product designer and a developer, you are thinking about so many things, you know, it's it's not just about taste, it's a health, it's a sustainability, credentials, recycling, you know, making sure your carbon footprint, all of that stuff, you're starting to take into account as you're designing and developing a product and by the way it must be at a cost that meets your target consumer and and it has also to taste good food is so emotional right and I think sometimes a lot of people come at food in a very rational way and that's probably been one of my lessons learned is no food is not rational it's emotional we connect as humans as part of our culture Uh, you know we all gather around food and all of those things right so you can't sort of look at food and go, here it is in a very objective way. It's actually really, really subjective when you are pulling it together. Yeah, it's a fascinating space, isn't it? I was chatting to someone and I would, it, uh, it was Mike Lee from. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, no, no, he was MLA. Is he still there? No. No, Mike <laughs> Lee, I want to say Alpha Foods out of oh, the Alpha US. Foods. All right. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that balance of emotion logic and you can have all the facts going that this is healthy, but then we still go and eat cheeseburgers and and things. And it's, it is such an interesting space to be in, isn't it? And it's this, it's the psychology that sits behind it that, yeah, just how, how small the supply chain is now in a sense of what people are looking for and, Oh, I don't envy you guys. I totally agree. And I think you picked up on the point around innovation. And I do want to kind of talk because I speak about innovation a lot. And, and, you know, it's my day job. I live and breathe it as well, right? And and sometimes I think people 
have very, very different mental maps of what innovation is. And so my definition of innovation is actually it's any change um, that creates or adds value. Uh, it could be to a product, to a process, to, you know, um, anything that you're doing. And sometimes I think people kind of go, innovation needs to be this big, sexy thing, <laughs> right? Um, but it, it can be a big, sexy thing. But if it doesn't actually give you a return on that investment that you put into that innovation and therefore there's a value at the end, in our business, we sell food. So that's the value. It's uh, the price and the profit, right? Um, um, as well as, you know, making sure we're respecting our resources and how we do that. But in, in other things, you know, innovation could be a small tweak that is about just the value that you create in a process, which could be in the factory. It could be in our financial models or anything like that as well. So it's, it's important that I think people sometimes kind of clock innovation as this thing and everyone goes, oh, I want to be innovative. And if I'm not doing that, I'm not doing cool stuff. Kind of thing. Uh, and it's getting people to really appreciate that innovation doesn't matter how big or small is about that value creation. And how much has your role as an innovator changed as you've kind of gone through your career? Oh, hugely, right? Firstly, I miss probably doing some of that original stuff. That yeah. <laughs> uh, but I still try and, you know, interfere and, and, and work with my team on that. I'm sure they love it. Probably not. Because uh, uh, you just can't help. I think I'm naturally wired that way to always look for improvs or always try and disrupt what I'm kind of doing, right? Um, yeah, look, it's changed. I think, you know, very early on, you know, I remember actually working when I was at Mars. Um, so the owners of obviously uh, Mars bars and all of that. And I was in a role as R&D manager in Japan. And so I had the, the pleasure of working and the privilege of working in Japan, which is one of the ultimate consumer markets in the world, if you ever have a chance to work with them. Um, and we had three-month innovation cycles, Ollie. Right, which meant that in three months is what it needed to take from when you had an idea to when you had to had to launch because that consumer was so fast moving. And I was working in the area of pet food. So that's why I said before I was designing food for humans and then I went to design food for pets, right? And you know, when I first got there, I went, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? How are they going to talk to me? You know, are they going to wag their tail? Literally, yes, they do. They, <laughs> tail, they like something, right? But I was designing food for little Japanese cats and dogs, and it was the most ultimate experience of going in home and speaking to what was the customer or the human and how they would actually be looking after their pets and the care that they would take, dressing the same as the pets. You know, the pets never walk. They were being carried in lovely, you know, Louis Vuitton or whatever else it was. And it, it was a dog's and a cat's life, right? Um, and, you know, just doing some of those stuff where you're truly immersing and then you come back as a designer and a developer and you go, right, what insights did I gather now? How do I turn this into... An, an opportunity of a product that that customer will need that that consumer which is a pet will actually love to eat and we did some wonderful innovations again you know three month cycles that were gone and so they were probably gone in a few years because you had to be bringing in new news all the time so they there and I think there were some of the great jobs and then over the years you know when I was at uh, Yum which was you know the 
Young Brands, which is a house of KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell. Again, very, very different. You're actually really, you know, looking and amazed at, you know, we were talking about how food is emotional, the amount of people who come through the quick service restaurant, say in Australia, it's 2 million people a week back then, right? So who, who will come in and they're your core Heartland users and then you have your periphery. But, you know, that market and that opportunity there is wonderful. So I learned, again, very, very much about agile innovation, very fast, really designing, you know, things. And you can make, as a product developer, you make things perfect, right, in your, in your lab, in your kitchen or in your pilot plant. But then, you know, one of the big lessons I learned at Yum was actually there's a 15-year-old who needs to execute that when you've got 10 cars running in the drive in a drive through and people are beeping and screaming at you you've got to make something that a 15 year old can absolutely execute to what the image looks like um so don't overthink the design of these things right (laughs) don't make a high-end burger that is very hard to assemble in whatever it is under 30 seconds hey it's nick here sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives, those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. Has there been a, a certain role or even maybe like a certain product which has really been kind of the launching pad for you to make your mark or that led on to, yeah, this, you really building that platform and catapulting off into these bigger spaces. I think there have been so many. They're a little bit like children, right? How do you pick one? (laughs) (laughs) I think in all of the companies I've worked in, um, there are many legacies that I'll leave behind. And I'm very fortunate to sit here and go, what's it been? I think last count was over a thousand products launched, right? Um, And, you know, that makes you feel like you've made an impact. You've had had a go at something. And I look probably... More than that, by the way, would have failed, Ollie. I think that's probably the things, right? So why did things fail um, for many, many varied reasons as well? I think the, the piece for me is ultimately always develop something that somebody needs and that you're trying to eliminate a job for a consumer or, you know, make it more convenient, make it more healthy, whatever it is. Otherwise, there's too many products. I don't know when the last time you walked down a supermarket shelf, you know, how do you choose, you know, there's... 12 different sources all saying the same thing and you kind of go, right, which one do I pick and how do I make my choice and my decision as well? So I think there's also those things to also consider in a world where we're also moving to scarce resources versus, you know, what we probably had a few years back was more abundant and um, and I think that needs to drive a very different mindset in terms of how we're designing food 
creating food, um, being very mindful of the resources we use, but also the waste that we generate as well. Yeah, and is that like, is it a hard contradiction where you find yourself in terms of the need to innovate and get new products on the shelves and drive revenue, but at the same time too, it's like, well, are we just creating more waste? Like I'm thinking you mentioned that three-month product cycle, like innovation cycle, like, yeah, does it does it sometimes eat away at you in terms of kind of your values a bit? Um, yeah, I, I think it makes you a bit more conscious to really think about it, and and really even um, you know even in, in our in my time here in our business, we talk about all of those things, right, and making sure that we take really holistic um, views when we make those decisions. Um, look, fast-moving consumer goods is a huge engine. It's a huge business. Um, and and once you're on that hamster wheel, you're on the hamster wheel. Um, and I think, you know, even if you, if you let's take, you know, one of my real passion areas of the minute is around this whole alternative protein area. And, yep. and you look at the growth of that, the plethora, even just in Australia when they all, you know, launched in about a few, well, three years ago now, right? Um, and I remember the launch in Coles and there was probably about 20, 26 or something companies that launched, you know, like products that were there that, that came off, brands really unknown. Everybody was going to, you know, give it a red hot shot and then, Probably a year later, it was less than half of that left on the shelf. Mm. Um, so, you know, and I love it. I love to see how people are giving it a go and trying it. But ultimately, that consumer is looking for probably you need to meet their need. Yeah. And, and things like taste become really, really important. And, uh, yes, you know, environment and good for the planet is very important as well. And there'll be consumer segmentation. But ultimately, if these things don't taste good, Nobody's going to come back and then you start to actually adulterate the whole category with that view as well, right? So mm. we've all got to grow that pie together. It's fascinating because I remember 2019, Global Table and yeah. Sunfed Meats really had their big launch. And yeah, uh, to be honest, I don't even know if they're still on the supermarket shelves. I think that was the week that they got distribution through Coles and Woolies, I think it was. And then- Correct, yes. And I was very eager to go and try it. And I did try. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as I say, I did not repeat purchase. <laughs> well, yeah, I, was, I wasn't sure if you're allowed to say it, but I could jump in and say that, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty average tasting product. So. Yeah. And we <laughs> have to be mindful of that, right? Because, and for me, I think, you know, the more we, we look into this space and, and talk about food, you've, you've got to make sure food tastes great. Yeah. That you cannot compromise on that. Nobody's going to want to put in their body anything that doesn't taste. It's so much about enjoyment. Mm. And there are people who will say, you know, I eat food for fuel. Okay, yes, great. <laughs> but it's still got to taste good somewhere. Oh, bloody earth. Oh, God. <laughs> it would be a, a pretty crappy existence, I reckon. Oh, you, I think so, yeah. This alternative protein space, look, do you see, like, I, I guess we, it feels like we keep just, we're just bobbing in the ocean with it a bit. There's these waves keep coming where it's like, oh, yep, it's going to be the next big thing. And then it's doomsday again. Like, is have they just, have they not quite hit the mark yet in terms of really nailing that product fit for what the consumers are looking for? Is it? 
Yeah, look, it's probably um, softened, right, if you look across globally. Um, and, and I think there are many variables and many, many companies are trying to get their head around this as well. Um, you know, so one investor sentiment has been so high, has that really blown the balloon so much? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like a typical S-curve. Whenever you're launching something, it kind of goes on that S-curve. And I think maybe this S-curve is a little bit lower than the, your typical form. But, um, you know, I only have hypotheses and my hypotheses or what I see is there's so much choice there. Uh, and if, if, if I'm a consumer and I go and try one and it doesn't live up to my expectations of whatever they might be, whether, you know, and my hypothesis there is that it is taste. If it doesn't, then I won't come into it. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'll probably won't repurchase back or something. Or, or and I think there's a job for do for every player in that is to maybe be mindful of of making sure it does taste good. Otherwise, you'll actually won't grow the category, and therefore nobody benefits. So, yeah. how do you take more of a collaborative approach um, to that? I think there's also other things like inflation. Obviously, that's you know everything is going up, and you know whether some parts of the market, particularly when you look at innovations. And in food, you want to actually scale. You have to get to the mass because you're not going to get scale on niche, right? Unless you get to a really high value. But as baskets, and even I've been, you know, shopping lately, and you look at the baskets, and you can see people are probably opting for more of the own private label uh, mm. over brands as well. So people are making choices of what that is, and I think it will also come back to the relativity of. Because plant protein is there for flexitarians or reductarians like me, um, not for the vegans and the vegetarians necessarily. That, that's the market you want to convert. So, you know, they'll be also looking at the price of animal protein versus this as well. Yeah. yeah. In, in terms of food trends, is there something which is, obviously you've had your finger on the pulse for a long time, but is there something which is kind of just blowing you out of the water caught you by surprise in terms of you scratching your head going how on earth has that actually become something i think i would say um the low sugar stuff i know it sounds really basic but you know as a product developer you kind of go well but that's full of xyz (laughs) that actually and the way that it's probably shaped it i think is has has sort of come come away i'm more interested in things that are coming like you know 3d printed food and that holy grail of about you can personalize everything because ultimately what does everyone want you want to personalize it right we do that with everything in our lives and uh Imagine if you could do that with food in a way and uh, and start to really personalise food to your nutrition, to your life stage, your lifestyle, all of that. I think that will be a game changer. Um, ultimately, it gives almost that control or that power to the consumer to the versus actually I have to go to a shelf and I'm constrained to what I need to actually get. <laughs> Do you think that potentially has a, a bit of a shoes of prey-esque kind of piece to it though, where the consumer gets there and goes, oh my God, like I, I think of this now and I open Uber Eats and go, oh, there's too many choices. I might just go and buy something from the supermarket instead. But <laughs> yeah. do you reckon there's that sense of overwhelm there? It, it might be, it might be, I think. Um, but then you have the choice, right? And then therefore the that almost, if you will, that is given back to the consumer rather than it being dictated for it. It's it's the same as like, you know, 
you have Netflix, you have Prime and you have Stan, whatever. And sometimes you still still learn, I can't find anything to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? Go to YouTube. <laughs> and so what else is, is coming in that space that you kind of have your finger on the pulse of the 3D printed foods? You, yeah. You're big in this whole food as medicine piece. Uh-huh. I am definitely still. And, um, you know, great to also be in a business that is really about how do we have much more better products for you as well and really look at it at, um, ensuring that we're um, taking the best that you know agriculture gives us and turning it into value as well and I think there's such a huge role and you know one of the things that I'm always and I think I talked about agri-food before and I want to touch on that is we've got to get the food industry much more closely connected to the world of agriculture and the world of agriculture actually really connected in with food. I feel like sometimes in our country we still run, you know, there's agriculture and then there's food manufacturing. Well, actually, you you need both because otherwise both can't be there without each other. And ultimately agriculture is food, right? We, we convert it and create food as well. So if, if you couldn't really start to bring those together, I think that starts to create um, probably a lot more of the current issues or systemic issues that we're seeing in the food system, you know, in terms of um, the resources availability, the scarcity of it, the amount of waste and things like that. I think it can actually really help us um, make sure that we can create food for the millions that we need to feed in the future. Uh, and it's interesting because that's got me thinking or just as we're chatting and there's this this conversation which seems like it goes on and on and on and it's all farmers need to become like own more of their supply chain become vertically integrated you guys at simplot have done that where you own areas from the the farm right through to the fork and, and owning that product the whole way along but then on the flip side too to get uh cheap but highly nutritious and good quality food to consumers so that they can afford it but that's where you guys special or food companies specialize in the food end because that's what they know. That's what they're good at. Farmers stick to growing commodity goods because that's what they know. That's what they're good at. Like, so, so how do you see the two converging and coming together? Is it cooperative type arrangements or how? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I, I mean, there's a number of examples of cor- cooperatives that do that. Like, you know, you look in the dairy business and things like that. And over over time, that's been quite a successful model to enable that. Um, and and I think at the end of the day, is we've got to really start to to look at the value of those agricultural inputs so that they don't become commodity. Um, and the worst thing we can say is agriculture is all about commodity. We've got to start to look at that value-added possibility. And absolutely, I do feel the role of a farmer is to think that way, not just to grow for a commodity that somebody else and takes and converts, right? Um, and if you think, you know, back even to if we if we can get, you know, great functionality, health benefits from food rather than popping a pill of some sort, why wouldn't you look at creating that value upstream so that a farmer is growing, I don't know, like a high-protein chickpea or something like that because there's a now value that you can start to realise. So I do think there's a role that all the way across the chain um, that everyone can play. And I think it's also the role of the food industry to 
to really start to probably respect these resources that we're using to create this food. And you kind of reference cheap food. Um, it's not always cheap food, but there's a value equation, right? And so where is that value coming from? Is it being dictated by the supermarkets? Is it the, the consumer that that's, you know, that's all they'll pay for, right, without really probably truly understanding what it takes to bring food? I think we live in a country where we have abundance. Mm. Um, so we haven't had to worry about that. Um, and um, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, I sit here still hopeful, but our food system and the planet is saying something else. And yeah. you just wonder and, you know, you look at crisis things like in Sri Lanka now and then where, you know, they're saying they won't have food in September. It's, that's really sad. How can, you, how can you have a country that will not have food to feed its people? Yeah, it's, people's, right? it's an interesting case study, isn't it, in terms mm. of how, uh, how, I guess, a, a sentiment or a, a trend, but, yeah, a certain type of practice that then happens on mass that then becomes in in essence a, a monoculture of a type and then it's fallen over it's yeah mm-hmm. crazy huge humanitarian issue yes absolutely yeah i'm i'm intrigued in in your role now so with simplot in terms of what your role looks like but also to just how so you pride yourself on being an intrapreneur so you you work across these businesses but you you're able to innovate from within and I'd love to know. So how, how are you doing that at the moment in your role and, and through your team? Uh, I think I do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, part of it is um, I have the privilege of being on the executive um, team. So you, you can actually influence across the organisation there rather than just within your team. And, and I guess part of my role is because it is the innovation and growth remit, which means really making sure that as a business we are maximising the value and creating, you know, the products that our customers and our consumers want and it's highly relevant. But it's also going to be resilience in terms of given all of our supply chain global challenges that we're finding, you know, impact of the war in Ukraine and all of that and we're delivering future growth and finding new areas that we as a business in Simplot can go into. So you can imagine it's quite varied uh, mm. and no one day is probably the same, right? Um, I think the, the thing is, is probably navigating through a, a world that is post kind of pandemic and, and really an endemic and kind of seeing, okay, how do you innovate in this world, which is highly ambiguous, throwing us surprises all the time, and making sure that you're making it really clearer for your teams um, who may not always be very comfortable with ambiguity. So making sure that there's, you know, focus is prioritisation and you're also allowing for that creativity and that agility to come through as well. Um, One of the things I really love about some of the stuff we do is really actually get our teams charged looking at new stuff and finding the space and the moments to actually go and co-create with our customers and our consumers and come up with new things, right? Because if we don't do that, then you're kind of stuck within the boundaries of the world that you know in. So um, I guess a lot of my role, I always say, is trying to really think where do we find value? Where can we actually improve to what we're doing, challenging some of the things that we're doing today just because it's been done the same way doesn't, doesn't mean it's the best value that we bring. 
And so with all those different things happening you, between um, your, your roles inside Simpop, but then also all your involvement's kind of outside helping mentor, helping empower women, what's on the horizon for you? Is there anything kind of, yeah, like, what's next? What's oh. the next challenge for you? What's the next challenge? I, I love a challenge all the time. So something that gets my grey matter flowing and, you know, a big problem to sink my teeth into is always great for me. It's the stuff that gets me going. I think one of the stuff I love, like, through, you know, the work that I'm doing on with my mentorship and my board roles and advisory is just seeing the, the difference that you can make. Uh, whether it's a startup who's starting or, you know, uh, a young person who's just starting early in their career or someone who's wanting to become a seniorpreneur after so many years in, the, in a corporate life or whatever. Um, it's just sharing some of the, the experience and the knowledge, but also I think um, connecting people to probably resources in my network as well, right? And I think those things, yeah, and that just gives me energy. It actually just feels more of my passion than anything. So what's more of that? I want to do more of it. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the thing that you're always looking for to go, okay, how do I actually leave behind a legacy and make an impact? So that's that's my thing. Maybe that's too old and wise. Who knows, Ollie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, given your expertise, well, there's a few questions I want to finish on to wrap up. But yeah. in terms of a question um, I got asked the other day and it was around, so for, for, for a business or so Australian food, agri-food, um, products trying to get into new markets you've historically and, and i think in australia we talk about this clean green image which there's other countries in the world that have it it's not unique to australia mm-hmm. what's unique to australia and how should we be talking about agri-food products out of australia into new markets oh that's a great question so whoever asks that um Look, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, clean, green, safe, high quality are all the great credentials that we have and we absolutely have to fiercely protect that and keep that. Uh, but I think where we forget is we've then got to actually really design that food for the target market that you're selling it to. And I used to kind of say when I, we were in the chocolate business is, how do you turn a $30 box of chocolates into a $300 box of chocolate? It's not going to be the Australian consumer that will pay for it, but there will be a consumer that will pay for it. And back then the hypothesis was it was an upper middle class Chinese consumer, if you if you. And then, but then what is the current, what are the things and the benefits and the product attributes that that consumer will want in a $300 box of chocolates? Is it all going to be of gold? I don't know, right? So again, how do you really design for it? And I think one of the things, if you sit here in Australia, we go, we can grow so much food that feeds more than, you know, three times the population that we have. But are we doing it in the best value way that we can deliver it? Um, And through the use of technology, smart know-how, intellectual property, all of that I think needs to come together to create that value. So I do feel like we sometimes in our country underplay the role of a true food exporter. And that only comes when you're not actually just only exporting agriculture commodity. 
we're actually turning that ag input into a valuable food for somebody mm. that's willing to put a price and pay for it at whatever, you know, from whatever the value equation is. Yeah, absolutely. On the back of that, what what's a question you've got for me that you'd like me to ask a future guest? How do we in Australia start to think more global rather than local? And the reason I say that is um, ultimately, you know, we talk about when we talk about innovation, ultimately it's about scale. And it doesn't matter what sector you're in, we just happen to be in agri-food here. Um, we can create great new innovations, great new technologies, but in order to scale and really get it to the economies of scale where the value works is when we make those much bigger than just within our shores. Mm-hmm. And I do think we have such a huge role to play across a number of our sectors in the global market that sometimes we kind of constrain our thinking and only look in our own backyard, right? Um, So I do think there's a a lot more opportunity there that we can certainly um, give from an Australian perspective. There you go. I answered my own question, but I'm interested in the next one. (laughs) Well, I'll ask it, then we can compare the pair. (laughs) One last question, and I love asking this one because I just think what people come up with, no matter what stage of their career at, is just truly fascinating. So if you get the chance to go back and chat to a bunch of Year 10 students... What's your advice to them around pursuing a career in, let's call it, agri-food? Ah, yeah. Look, my, my first advice to them is if you love food, pick this career. <laughs> right? <laughs> and probably the other thing is, is, is shift your mental map. If you think agri-food equals cooking just or being a chef or it's actually a lot more than that right um and uh and there's so many different facets of it that it brings and i think one job that we can do much better is communicating about just you know what is my day job what does that involve versus still probably i swear half of my family think i'm a cook (laughs) 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 oh idea they go oh you're a food technologist what does that mean kind of thing right so that will be my advice to a year 10. And I think, you know, my goodness, I'm so excited. I wish I could be a year 10 student because can you imagine what they will be studying? Um, and even food technology, as I studied back then, is so different now. You know, that whole tech and um, true technology coming together and food and agri is going to be amazing when you think about ag tech and you know, new technologies like 3D printing. We were talking about and other things that are coming through. Wow, so exciting! <laughs> and and just having having their skills, but also they've been around so many different technologies for so long, and just like being having that youthful imagination and just seeing the opportunities. Like I think what excites me about the sector at the moment yeah. is well, at, yeah, at the moment is just really around. You look at these global challenges, and in your area, as you mentioned, as part of this, it's around the innovation in taste, it's the innovation in the structure of food. Then there's also all the packaging. And then you look at the things that people really care about, like young people coming through, they care about animal welfare, they care about the environment, Mm -hmm. like all these different issues. Like it it comes back to food. And I think the sector is just in for such an exciting time 
Oh, yes. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. And we have, all have a job to do to really promote the sector, right? Because it, it is seen as, you know, but I think the thing is we we tell little pockets of story. You know, we might talk about the plight of the farmer uh, and how they're growing a commodity and they can't get the price. Um, or, you know, we talk about succession planning or, you know, um, all of the other challenges that farmers have, but we don't actually talk about the whole chain. Mm. And I think, you know, that when you when you do say, I mean, it's quite a powerful, influential sector. Um, and that coming together of agri-food, I think, you know, even if we can shift our conversation in our country that way, that will have a huge impact. That will have a huge impact. Absolutely. No, it's, it's the space we're trying to play in, sharing the stories. It is because it's just, it's how do you nearly redefine what agriculture is in terms yeah. of it is starts here even pre-farm gate in terms of research and r&d and everything else but then now where it's so cool is that you get to the consumer and then it goes to well, what's happening with the waste streams and then it comes back around like it's this mm-hmm. it's this full circle it's so exciting yeah yeah the possibilities are endless ollie my mind boggles and, <laughs> like, any true innovator or disruptor is just go wow the possibilities what can what more can you do <laughs> Bloody earth. Uh, well, Angeline, thank you so much for coming on for a chat. You've, you've been summit. You've been on my whiteboard behind me for a very long time. I've, I've got this I'm list. Probably... So thank you for coming on for a chat. It's been fantastic to catch oh, up. Thank you for having me and putting me on your whiteboard. I feel super privileged. <laughs> Gee whiz, she is an absolute rock star. I hope you guys enjoy that because I just love leaning into these types of conversations with people like Angeline. I think There's just so much opportunity in seeing how we can bring the agriculture side and the food side more closely connected. If you care about health and nutrition, if you care about waste, if you care about getting products that people like, like there's just such a connection between food and agriculture. Uh, And it's something which just, yeah, blows my mind. And I'm just so fascinated and curious to find out more. I'd love to know your thoughts on this episode. Did you enjoy hearing it? Do you want to hear more? Um, episodes like this from people of different backgrounds but also just different areas of the supply chain and I'd love to know what resonated with you and if you did enjoy this conversation and kind of the conversations we're having more broadly this episode is part of our collaboration with Evoke Ag and if you want to meet and see and hear more incredible innovators and get across the latest agri-food trends you can register now as an attendee or to exhibit at Evoke Ag in 2023 to find out more head to evokeag.com 